Palatial, UltimateSportsTalk.com, radio studios. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I am Dave Mitchell, and for the next 60 minutes, we'll sit back and talk about the Olympics, Major League Baseball, professional football. NASCAR starts this weekend, and of course, the big UFC fight. We also have a big announcement to tell you that's going on in just a couple of weeks here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. We'll do that at the end of the show, so stick around for that. What a heartbreaker this afternoon in Sochi for Team USA's women's Olympic hockey team. They led 2 nothing throughout most of the ball game, but it went into overtime where Marie-Philippe Poulin of Canada scored an OT to give Canada the gold medal 3-2 to over Team USA. She tied the game with 54.6 seconds left in regulation. Poulin tied the game after Canada pulled its goalie late in regulation. And in overtime, with a 5-on-3 advantage, Poulin skated in from the left point and scored at 8.55 to keep Olympic gold in Canada. It's the fourth consecutive Olympic title for the Canadians. The past three have come at the expense of the United States. U.S. Captain Megan Dugan scored in the second period. Alex Carpenter's power play goal in the third staked Team USA to a two-goal lead. Brianne Jenner got Canada's first goal to set up a wild finish. Shannon Sabados made 27 saves for Canada, which has won its past 20 games in the winter games since the Nagano final in 1998. That was the only gold medal for the United States, which has lost in the Olympic finals to Canada three straight times since then, as I said. The U.S. missed a chance to ice the game when a shot toward Canada's empty net ticked off the far post with just 80 seconds left to play. Jesse Vetter made 28 saves for the Americans, and Switzerland beat Sweden for the bronze medal. But again, in a heartbreaker, Canada 3, Team USA 2 in the gold medal game. Team USA takes home the silver medal. And on Friday... It's Canada against Team USA again, this time in the men's semifinals. It's a rematch of the 2010 gold medal game for a shot to become an Olympic champion. The Canadians held off Latvia 2-1, and they beat the Americans in overtime four years ago. The U.S. has been tested only once in a 3-2 eight-round shootout against the host Russians in the preliminary round. In the meantime, the Russians have gone home. And believe it or not, they are not even in the medal round. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough blow for Russia, obviously. You look at the way that Finland played, I think that was the real story of the game, is that Finland is so good internationally on the big ice. They use it to their advantage. They take all that extra space, and they make you work to get to the middle of the ice. And that's exactly what they did against uh, Russia. And the fact that Russia won't be playing for a medal in their home country it is a huge disappointment. The coach apparently was hounded by the media after the game, yeah. barely could get out of the press conference afterwards. So that just goes to show you how much they care about this gold medal. And the fact that they're not going to get it is uh, obviously disappointing to not just the hockey players, but the country as a whole. And I hate to be in their skates right now. Well, they're probably not in skates. They could be in boots in Siberia. Rumor has it that the coaches have been seen since that press conference. Again, the Americans go into this game having crushed the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Slovenia by a combined score of 17-4. to That game, Canada against Team USA, will be tomorrow at noon. Switching gears and going to the NBA, 
Of course, today was the trade deadline in the NBA, and the Cleveland Cavaliers made a lot of noise, but only made one deal. They acquired center Spencer Hawes from the 76ers. The Cavaliers sent forward Earl Clark, center Henry Sims, and two second-round draft picks to the 76ers. Hawes is one of the league's better floor-spacing big men, but he really has checked out on the Sixers' miserable season a few weeks ago. Even a committed Hawes isn't a very formidable center, so a clear lack of effort lately in Philadelphia really became clear. Whether a trade to a more competitive team like Cleveland will sharpen his focus remains to be seen. Still, a motivated Hawes would at least help Cleveland to spread the floor for Kyrie Irving and Deion Waiters' work off the dribble. The bigger question is whether only a few months of that offensive influence is worth multiple draft picks. In my mind, it is. They're second-rounders. Barely ever does a second-round pick make an NBA team. I think this was worth the gamble. Plus, Hawes is on a $6.6 million expiring contract, meaning the Cavs could be left without any long-term return if he opts to sign elsewhere as a free agent this summer. But who cares? They still have Tyler Zeller, and they still have Anderson Varejao. Hawes, 25, is averaging a career-high 13 points, 8.5 rebounds. I'll take that from Spencer Hawes. He's shooting 45% from the field, and believe it or not, 40% from the three-point arc. His 81 threes are more than double his previous career high. Clark was doing nothing for the Cavaliers. He's 26. He averaged five points a game and three rebounds in 15 and a half minutes and 45 games for the Cavs. He's making four and a quarter million dollars this year, the last year of his guaranteed contract. Sims, who went undrafted from Georgetown in 2012, averaged 8.4 minutes and 20 games with the Cavaliers. And don't look now, the Cavs have won six straight. They're breathing down the necks of Charlotte for the eighth and final playoff spot, and they go to Toronto to take on the Raptors tomorrow night. Now, elsewhere in the NBA, let's look at a few of the moves that have been made over the last couple of days. Today, the Houston Rockets traded guard Aaron Brooks to the Denver Nuggets for forward Jordan Hamilton. Then, the Nuggets turned around and traded Andre Miller to the Washington Wizards for forward Jan Vesely. Yesterday, the Golden State Warriors traded with the Los Angeles Lakers. They picked up Steve Blake and traded the Lakers' Marshawn Brooks and Kent Bazemore. And the New Jersey Nets made a deal. It was a big deal. Not a very big deal. The Sacramento Kings got Jason Terry and Reggie Evans from the Nets in exchange for guard Marcus Thornton. And in case you wondered, the Cleveland Cavaliers did hold on to Luau Dang, even though there was... A lot of rumors going around that he would be traded. But the big trade today, it was Spencer Hawes going to the Cleveland Cavaliers in exchange for Earl Clark, Henry Sims, and two second-round draft picks to the Philadelphia 76ers. Can you believe it's only four weeks before Selection Sunday is going on in the NCAA. Well, Syracuse, as usual, Jim Beheim can't finish a season unbeaten. Syracuse was beaten last night, 62-59 in a heartbreaker against Boston College. The Orange led by eight after the first half, but the Eagles stormed back with a 33-point second half to take the game to overtime. 
A couple of three-pointers and four straight free throws for Boston College in the final 30 seconds meant that Syracuse dropped from the ranks of the unbeaten. Jim Beheim, after the ball game, spoke about what cost his Orangemen their perfect season. I thought we uh, did an unbelievable job in the first half defensively. Our offense was not good. And then we made a couple plays to start the second half, and we lost our defense. We just uh, allowed them to shoot threes, and they made seven. Uh, you know, we just really completely lost our defensive edge in the second half. And, um, you know, that was, you know, offensively we're not shooting the ball particularly well uh, the last few games. But when you get in enough of these games, uh there's going to be one of them that you're not going to make a play. You know, we missed a couple of easy shots. We missed a couple of free throws. And they made their free throws, and that's what happens if you get in these games. Throughout the years, Jim Beheim's best coaching years have been with teams that have lacked talent. When he's had teams with super talent, he has not been able to to win a national championship. Now, of course, he's only been to the national championship game twice, winning it once. But that year that they won the national championship, he really didn't have that much talent. Certainly you could say he had Carmelo Anthony, which he did. But after that, there was a very big drop-off in talent after Anthony down to their second-best player. Syracuse ended up winning the national championship. If you go back further, the year that Indiana won the national championship with Keith Smart and Steve Alford, Syracuse actually had the better talent, but Bobby Knight outcoached Jim Beheim. Well, Syracuse really has been the number one team since early in January, but the loss now leaves Wichita State as the last remaining top 25 team without a loss. Now, Syracuse was unlikely to keep that streak alive for the entire season. But the fact that it lost to Boston College, who's 7-19 and now, wasn't something that many people saw coming. Still, who will be number one in next week's rankings? Well, in this week's rankings, Syracuse was, of course, number one. Florida was number two. I like Billy Donovan as a head coach. But are the Gators the number two team in the country? I don't think so. Then come the shockers of Wichita State. The biggest shock this week would be if they jumped up to that number one position. But I think Florida is going to have to lose again for the shockers to be number one. And even then, number four Arizona may overtake the shockers. It's one thing to give Wichita State a number one seed. It's another one for the media to put them the number one team in the country. Number five this week was Duke. Then came San Diego State, even after their loss to Wyoming. Cincinnati was number seven. Cincinnati is an enigma. Let me tell you something. The Bearcats play great defense, but they are a team that does not have a good jump shooter. How they score is something else. And Hugh Cronin has really done a great job with this ball club. They throw the ball up on the rim, and then they crash the boards get the rebounds, and put it back up. Kansas is number eight, Villanova number nine, but Villanova will drop out of the top ten after their loss earlier this week. And St. Louis moved into the number ten position this week. That's a look at college basketball. Well, the teams have reported to Florida and Arizona. The Major League Baseball season will begin 
later on in March, around the 27th and 28th, down under in Australia. But still, the baseball season took the headlines this week. And it was mainly because there were no tears, no real cracks in his voice, no showing of emotion, and with the same emotion that he's played the game under for the past 23 seasons in a New York Yankees uniform, well, Derek Jeter will walk into retirement after this season is over. But, as he told everyone at the press gathering yesterday, he still has one more season to play. You know, I took a lot of time uh, thinking about this. You know, last year I've, I've been very vocal on how disappointing last year was, how hard it was for me to play, um, how hard it was for me to come to the stadium each and every day. And, um, you know, you start thinking about how long do you really want to do this. And, um, you know, let me, let me say one thing is that I still have a season to play. So um, this is just letting you guys know that this is going to be my last year. But I felt as though it was the right time. Um, I've been doing this for a long time. This will be parts of 20 seasons that I've been playing here in New York and, uh, you know, parts of 23 if you count the minor leagues. So I just think I've done it for long enough, and, and, and I look forward to doing some other things in my life. But I can't reiterate enough that we still have a season to play. And, yes, he has another championship to win. Jeter even scolded all of his New York Yankee teammates yesterday for coming to the press conference, telling them to get back to work. Jeter spent all but 18 games on the disabled list just a year ago. He's 39 and insists if he could keep playing, he would. The ankle feels strong. The legs are good. The body feels young. He just thinks that this is time to go, and it has absolutely nothing to do with his physical capability. You know, everyone I told when I when I first started speaking about this with family and friends, they all told me to, you know, make sure you take your time. <clears throat> Don't base this decision on, on what happened last season. Uh, wait until you're healthy and then make the decision. So this has absolutely nothing to do with how I feel physically. I, physically, I feel great, um, and, and I'm looking forward to playing a full season. Well, even with his constant reminders that he has one season left, when this season finally ends, Jeter knows there will be no turning back, and he's fine by that. But now the focus should be spent on winning another world championship in a Yankees uniform. Not just uh, me going out on top. You know, my teammates, you know, these are the guys that, that, that have made it fun for me. You know, the banter back and forth, um, the battles that we've been through, the highs, the lows. Um, you know, they, they've really made this job, um, you know, they're taking the monotony out of it. Because, you know, we're playing every single day. And, and uh, you know, I've been blessed to have some great teammates throughout the years. Uh, this year we have a lot of new teammates I'm looking forward to playing with. Um, you know, but these are these are the guys that you, you go out there and you battle with each and every day. And uh, anytime you have teammates say good things about you, it makes you feel good. Because you play this game. It's a team sport. And uh, you, you play it with your teammates each and every day. Do you remember the core that won Five world championships for the New York Yankees. I mean, there was Derek Jeter, and then there was Mariano Rivera, and there was Jorge Posada. And those were the three guys, the core guys, that kept this team together. And then, of course, you had other players like Scott Brocious, Paul O'Neill, Bernie Williams. I mean, that was a great Yankee ball club. Do I like the Yankees? Absolutely not. 
But Joe Girardi was a big part of that. As a matter of fact, Joe Girardi, the manager of the Yankees now, was the catcher of the Yankees when Jeter came up and won the American League Rookie of the Year Award in 96. It was just one of those things that Jeter stepped in and he was automatically the captain and the leader of that ball club. He led guys like C.C. Sabathia, Roger Clemens, John Wetland. Remember him? He was the initial closer before Mariano Rivera finally took over the role. There was Andy Pettit that was part of that core group, too. Uh, remember when last year when Mariano Rivera made his last appearance at Yankee Stadium, his last appearance as it finally turned out to be ever in a Yankee uniform, it was Andy Pettit and Derek Jeter that walked out to the mound to pull him from the ball game. Just a lot of things that Derek Jeter has been for the Yankees. And not only with all of that, he's been the epitome of class and professionalism. That's exactly what Derek Jeter has been. He actually wanted to announce his retirement before Christmas, but his his friends told him to hold off, be sure, they said, keep playing, why call it quits before it was needed, but actually they admitted afterwards that it was just their own selfish wants to keep him playing baseball. Jeter never offered specifics yesterday during the press conference, but he did drop a hint about what may be coming for him next. You know, there's things, there's other things that I want to do. Um, just like I said, I look forward to to uh, doing other things. You know, this is this is a difficult a difficult job. I mean, it's, it's you know, I put everything into it each and every year. Um, you know, it's a 12-month job. It's not a six-month season. This is 12 months. And, uh, you know, I look forward to doing other things. Not yet, but the idea of doing other things is something that I look forward to. So um, I know a lot of people have turned this into, you know, physically I can't do this, I can't do that. Look, I've been fortunate. I've played pretty much my entire career with, with one major injury. You know, besides a dislocated shoulder, it was six weeks. So, um, now I've been fortunate, so I can't sit here and complain about what happened last year. But uh, you know, I'm just ready to do other things. Um, not yet. I see the Steinbrenner family are looking at me. <laughs> not yet. Now comes the most difficult job in baseball. And this season it might come down on the shoulders of Joe Girardi. Because everybody, that includes not only the fans in New York, the fans in Cleveland, Detroit, Baltimore, Boston, Toronto, all over Major League Baseball. In every park, the Yankees are going to play in this season. The Yankees are always the prime draw for any season they play in. But this year will be different. Why? Obviously because Jeter is stepping down. So now they've got another reason. You know, LeBron James opened up a can of worms a couple of weeks ago when he was asked the question, Who's on his Mount Rushmore of basketball? Well, you can take that, and I've heard it ad nauseum over the last two weeks ever since that question was asked. But still, you can take that question and you can apply it to the New York Yankees. Who are the Mount Rushmore of Yankees? And it's obvious. There are four people that are on the Mount Rushmore for the New York Yankees. Babe Ruth. Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, and Lou Gehrig. But who do you move out of the way to put into that now on the Mount Rushmore of New York Yankees?
to put Derek Jeter in there because obviously Derek Jeter is going to belong on that Mount Rushmore. You can't put him there now because he's still playing. He's got 3,300 career hits. He's got the most hits of any Yankee of all time. He scored the most runs. He's played in the most games. He's played in the most playoff games. It's amazing what this guy has done. Now, is he the best shortstop ever in the history of baseball? I would say no. I still think the best shortstop in the history of baseball that I've ever seen is Omar Vizquel. Why? Because of his ability with the glove and his ability with the bat. Derek Jeter has had a great bat. He's a good defensive shortstop. Not a great one, but a good defensive shortstop. You can't put Cal Ripken in there either because Cal Ripken was just adequate at shortstop. Had a great bat, but just adequate at shortstop. But why is it the toughest job on Joe Girardi this year? When does he give the Yankees captain a day off now? Imagine, you're a father. You have some sons that you want to take Jeter to play. But you don't make a lot of money. And let's face it, it takes a lot of money to go to a Major League Baseball game today. Now, baseball may be the best value of any of the professional sports, but when you think especially of going to Cleveland or Cincinnati or Detroit to a baseball game, it costs you anywhere from 15 to $25 to park, 25 to $30 for a ticket, unless you're going to sit in the bleachers. It costs you anywhere from 25 to $30 just to feed one or two people when you go to the ball game. So not everybody can go to two or three, four or five games a year or buy the season tickets. Money's tight. You've got to scratch enough just to go to one game. And then when you get to that one game, and you hear the starting lineups, and you hear that Brandon Ryan is going to start at shortstop that day because it's a day off for Jeter. That's what's going to be tough on Joe Girardi. And what do you do if you're the Steinbrenner family? Do you sit down with Girardi and say, look, we've got 81 games at home. Jeter plays in all 81 games. Is that what you do? Is that what you tell Girardi to do? The only time Jeter is allowed to take a day off is one year on the road? Well, Yankees GM Brian Cashman says that Girardi knows what the deal is. His decisions are not going to be affected by this, and he's certainly not going to run him into the ground because of history. Girardi also remembers what it was like last year when fans wanted to see Mariano Rivera pitch all 162 games. And Girardi, again, for the second consecutive year, has to brace himself to be the bad guy in all of this. And in the meantime, the most difficult ordeal, difficult ordeal of the season might be Jeter's health. I mean, how is he going to be able to come back from that ankle injury? He says he's 100%, but he has not played more than 18 games in almost two years. He's dealing with distractions along with the health. People want to see him. People want to talk to him. Everybody wants a part of him. He's going to have a goodbye ceremony at every away park this year. He's going to have a goodbye press conference at every away park this year. People are going to flood his locker. When they go, Yankees come to town. All of this is going to happen during the regular season. And when it comes to playoffs, the pressure is going to be there again because is this going to be Derek Jeter's last game every time the Yankees come to an elimination contest. Well, he's got no choice but to deal with it, beginning from the opening day in Houston to the season finale in Boston. 
Cashman says people are going to pay more attention to him because of the historical meaning behind it. And it's true. It's coming. It all started Wednesday morning with about 50 fans lining up at the gate at George M. Steinbrenner Field to see if they could get a glimpse of Jeter, along with 60 cameras and 25 camera crews awaiting his arrival. It's only the beginning of the year-long celebration of one of the greatest Yankees of all time. The Mount Rushmore of the Yankees, after this year, Babe, Garrick, Mantle, and Derek Jeter. Also in baseball news tonight, the Baltimore Orioles have agreed to a four-year deal worth roughly $48 million with right-handed pitcher Ubaldo Jimenez. Now, he turned down a $14.1 million qualifying offer from the Cleveland Indians, so Baltimore had to forfeit a first-round draft pick, which is the 17th overall in next year's draft. Brittany Garoli reacts to the Orioles' signing of Jimenez and what it means to the team. They liked him, and all offseason, they maintained the fact that they were going to upgrade that rotation. Patience in this case ended up paying off. The big sticking point was that fourth year, which they ended up adding on. Uh, they felt like he was worth that investment. Keep in mind, this is unprecedented for the Orioles. They have never signed a free agent pitcher to a deal longer than three years. So this is a huge move for the organization. It really signifies that they want to win now. At the end of the day, they knew that Boston and Toronto had some interest. They wanted to keep him, of course, away from the competitors. But, you know, they needed this guy. It really helped strengthen that rotation and the competition throughout camp. I wouldn't surprise me at all if manager Buck Showalter wanted to put Wei Yin Chen as a lefty in between maybe the two right-handed pitchers. But I think they see him as probably the number two starter as it stands right now. Orioles Executive Vice President Dan Duquette has been searching for a veteran starter for much of the offseason to help anchor the rotation. Jimenez's career record is 82-75 and 75 with a 3.92 ERA over eight seasons. He went 13-9 and nine last year with a 3.30 ERA and 32 starts for Cleveland last season. And after the All-Star game, Jimenez in 13 starts was 6-5 and five overall with a 1.82 ERA. He finally found his groove, according to some. Garoli says the Orioles are hoping Jimenez can pitch like he did in September last year for the Tribe. And I find this very funny, and I'll tell you why after we hear what Garoli has to say. Certainly, if you can get back to what he put on display, the final six starts down the stretch there for Cleveland, uh, he was remarkable. And if he can really channel that, and I know that Buck Showalter and the Orioles I've really picked the brains of a lot of people who have had him when he was good and had him when he was bad, and they're obviously going to try to build off of that knowledge, but he's a huge piece. What knowledge? I'll tell you the knowledge that Ubaldo finally found. His agent's phone number on what it would take to get another large contract. You know, I don't understand how these owners in major sports make any money. I really don't. I mean, certainly there's a big TV contract, and certainly they get a lot from the, the gate receipts and the concession revenues and everything. But I'll tell you what, sports is a cash cow. If they ran their everyday businesses like their sports teams, these owners would be bankrupt in a minute. Ubaldo Jimenez is the guy at a major corporation that spends all his time in the bathroom or the break room drinking a cup of coffee. And then he has to run to the bathroom to take care of why he drank the coffee. 
This guy is lazy. He finally pitched for the Indians in the last two months of his contract last year in order to get a new contract. He signed a contract in 2009 with Colorado. I'll bring up the stats here. Okay, he signs a contract, a four-year deal in 2009 when he finished 15-12. and 12. He went 19-8 and eight the next year. Great, 2.88 ERA. All right, he finally inked the contract then. In 2011, he was 10 and 13. He went 6 and 9 with Colorado and 4 and 4 with Cleveland. And what Garoli said that the the Orioles are hoping that he can channel the last half of the season last year and they know the secret. Tell you what, that glistening hair, that golden locks that Buck Showalter has under his baseball cap in the Orioles' dugout, he's going to be pulling his hair out by the end of the first season with Ubaldo Jimenez. What Ubaldo needs is Tony Pena as a catcher that will come out, slap him across the face to get his attention like Pena did in 95 with Jose Mesa. He's undependable, mechanically unsound. He doesn't listen to any coaching, and he doesn't listen to his catchers. Even when he's at his best, Jimenez's control has never been great. He's averaged over four walks per nine innings in more than 1,200 career innings. He's led the league in wild pitches. His ground ball rate exceeded 50% with ease early in his career, but that number has dropped in recent seasons. His 43.5% mark in 2013 is a step up from his 2012 mark of 38.4%, but he's still below the league average. The 30-year-old right-hander broke into the majors with Colorado in 2006. His best season, as I said, was 2010. But to give him a four-year deal, that's crazy. I don't mind the money. The $12 million, okay. Even though he did lose $2 million by leaving the Indians, still the Indians get a first-round draft pick for him. But nonetheless, to give this guy a four-year deal is tantamount of asking him not to pitch the first three-and-a-half and then hope that he comes on in the last of his four-year deal, last six months of his four-year deal. This was just unbelievable. When I was talking with people about Jimenez coming back to the Indians, I would have given him a two-year deal with a club option for a third at around $12 million. You've got to keep this guy in a short leash. You've got to make him hungry. He needs incentive. He does not listen to coaching. He doesn't care what happens, and his wind-up is totally undependable and just, as I said, mechanically unsound. And if he starts losing it, it's gone for a long time. Just remember this. Security makes him lazy. And Ubaldo Jimenez will not be the key piece for an Orioles pitching staff. I mean, why they ever wanted Jimenez, I'll never know. They could have gone with Irvin Santana, who's younger and really has almost the same stats that Jimenez has. 82 and 75 career mark. And if you look at Irvin Santana, his career mark is 105 and 90. Jimenez came into the league in 2006, and Santana came in in 2005. They're virtually the same age. Uh, Jimenez is 29, and now Santana is... 29 also. 
But their career ERAs, virtually the same. Walks and strikeouts, really the same. I would have given Santana the long-term contract more than I would have given Ubaldo Jimenez. But we'll see what happens with Baltimore. Homer Bailey, in the meantime, has agreed to a six-year, $105 million contract with the Cincinnati Reds. That includes a mutual option for his seventh year. The right-hander, who is 11 and 12 with a 3.49 ERA in 2013, was the final major league player left in arbitration this year. With a hearing scheduled for Thursday, Bailey asked for 11.6 million. The Reds offered just under 9 million, their biggest gap among their players in arbitration. Bailey avoided arbitration last season with a one-year. million deal. Reds reporter for MLB.com, Mark Sheldon, explains the signing. They were under the gun because his arbitration hearing is scheduled for Thursday in Tampa, Florida, which meant that the parties would have had to have boarded a plane today at some point to get to Florida. So I think they were kind of working on that deadline. And and honestly, I think there was no desire on Homer's part to sign a one-year deal to avoid the arbitration and then carry this into the season with a multi-year. I think that would have probably been unlikely. So... They got it done. They were getting close as of a few days ago. Last week they were pretty far apart, but I guess once the arbitration deadline kind of comes uh, comes in, things kind of sped along. We've seen what he can do in big games. We can see what he can do in close games. We've seen his two no-hitters. Uh, we've seen him in the playoffs. He, he he definitely has a high ceiling, and he, he's shown that he he's worthy of the type of money that he is getting right now. He's in that conversation, especially based on his last three seasons. He's been – Really one of the better pitchers in the game. A lot of velocity. He's got a power right arm. He's been developing. He's been injury-free. Uh, he's, he's definitely taken that next step and turned the corner, and he's probably got some uh, some room to grow. You know, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it, but I think he can handle it pretty well. I don't think he's going to be feeling too much pressure. I think he's, you know, in his mind, I'm sure, he feels like he's earned this contract, and he's going to continue to earn it. Uh, as long as he stays healthy, uh, he, it's just—it's a big part of the picture for the Reds. They really needed to, with the rotation as young as it is, they're, they're all under 28 years old, and you got Cueto who's going to be up for arbitration possibly in 2015, Leda in 2015, Leak possibly after 2015. So they really needed to get these guys locked up for the long term. Whether they can get them all done, it remains to be seen. Lados could probably get more money than Bailey, uh, but this is the first step. They had to get this one done so they can move on to the next one. Well, they did get it done. The deal includes a $25 million mutual option for the year 2020 with a $5 million buyout and would help the Reds with their cash flow by deferring some of the salary for short periods of time. Bailey also is part of Reds history. He's the third pitcher in the team's history to throw two no-hitters, joining Johnny Vandermeer and Jim Maloney. Of course, Vandermeer threw two consecutive no-hitters. That's a look at baseball for tonight. We'll get into more of that next week. And it's time for our good, the bad, and the ugly segment for tonight. Glad to have you along this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. And let's start out with our good for this evening. Tuesday was the release date. The release date of what, you ask? Well, let me tell you. Sports Illustrated's 50th anniversary swimsuit issue. The Great American Tradition continued that puts the heat back in February, which is just what we need as I look out my window and see about 
nine inches of snow on the ground. This year, the cover girls are Nina Eggdahl, Lily Aldridge, and Chrissy Teigen. However, there's also a flip side cover with Kate Upton headlining that story, and I'm sure Tigers right-hander Justin Verlander likes that. The bad for tonight, we have to go into college football. Troy Calhoun is willing to take measures to slow down college offenses, but only if he sees hard evidence that defending an up-tempo offense creates genuine health risks. Yes, what I'm talking about is the proposed rule that would prevent offenses in college football from snapping the ball within the first 10 seconds after the 40-second play clock resets, allowing a defense to substitute even if the offense does not. Now, coaches from Alabama, Nick Saban, and Arkansas's Brett Bielema addressed Calhoun's committee last week, urging members to support such a measure because of player safety concerns. Now, six days after asserting a rule change would be made to enhance student-athlete safety by guaranteeing a small window for both teams to substitute, the Air Force coach and NCAA football rules committee chairman backtracked in a conference call with reporters saying he has seen no such data. Calhoun hasn't seen such data because it doesn't exist, but that's according to Auburn coach Gus Malzahn, one of the many hurry-up, no-huddle proponents who became outraged last week when the committee proposed a controversial rule aimed at slowing down the offensive schemes. Now, I guess the question, the first one that pops into my mind is, are the SEC coaches the only coaches that are allowed to come in and talk to this committee? Nobody else has an opinion from the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12, anybody? Well, on the other hand, the targeting rule that created a stir among fans, players, coaches, and the media will be tinkered with. And when we look at that, we turn to college football analyst Ivan Mazel, and he reports what that change will be this year. Well, this one is uh, screams of common sense. The rule that was in place last year said that after video review, if a targeting rule was suspended, the 15-yard penalty that went with it remained in place, which meant, which was very confusing because if you didn't, if you, didn't, if you weren't guilty of targeting, then why are you? Why is the penalty still in place? So what they've decided to do is rescind the penalty uh, if review shows that there was no targeting, then there will be no 15-yard penalty. That makes a lot of sense. I can't tell you how many times. The officials this year in games that I watched were looking at the play and the targeting penalty stayed, the 15-yard penalty, but then they came back and said, no, the player could come back and play. The rule proposals will not go into effect unless passed on March 6th by the Playing Rules Oversight Panel, which will discuss all of the committee's proposed changes. Coaches on either side of the discussion have until March 3rd to comment or present any evidence that supports their safety claims. So my bad for tonight, let's make sure that the hurry-up offense is not penalized in college football. But the ugly has to come from Sochi and the Olympics, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the Russians or the security over in that area. It comes from NBC. Olympic skier Bodie Miller 
took home a bronze medal in Sunday's Super G skiing competition. But what should have been a happy moment for the most decorated Olympic skier in United States history quickly turned ugly when NBC reporter Kristen Cooper repeatedly badgered him about his late brother. Miller lost his brother, Chalone, last year to what the medical examiner believed to be a seizure. With that in mind, Cooper pressed on with the emotionally charged questions about losing his brother until Bodie collapsed. This is not an easy interview to listen to, but let's listen to it right now. Bodie, you're showing so much emotion down here. What's going through your mind? Um, I mean, a lot, obviously. Just uh, a long struggle coming in here, and uh, just a tough year. And uh, I know you wanted to be here with, with Chile, really experiencing these games, and how much does it mean to you to, to come up with a great performance for him, and was it for him? Um, I mean, I don't know if it's really for him, but I wanted to come here and... and uh, I don't know, I guess make myself proud, but... When you're looking up in the sky at the start, we see you there, and it just looks like you're talking to somebody. What's going on there? She did her job. Did you hear her say sorry? It was then Miller collapsed, and that interview ended. Kristen Cooper had done what she wanted. She had gotten the raw emotion out of Miller, and it drove him to tears. Miller has since taken to, to Twitter to defend Cooper, which really, if you think about it, he's got to do. He can't sit back and complain about how he was treated by NBC and still expect sponsors to come to him and go to NBC. It just doesn't happen. They would have to alienate NBC. People felt Cooper had gone too far with her questions, and, and I agree. I mean, the question is, okay, he's looking up into the sky. What do you think he's looking at? The birds going overhead? Oh, there's a 767 that I'm supposed to be boarding on Sunday to go home. What do you think he's looking at up there, Kristen Cooper? Personally, also, I hate the question, what's going through your mind? It's a stupid and lazy question that reporters ask all the time because they just can't think of a good question to open an interview with. It makes me think, Hard to believe this, but it makes me think about a movie, and everybody knows this this movie, The Shawshank Redemption. And, of course, the warden question. When the warden committed suicide, when the cops were banging on his door, and the what is asked is, you know, I wonder what went through his head, the last thing that went through his head, other than that bullet. Well, that's the same thing, you know. What do you think is going through my mind? Hey, I'm glad I won. No, I'm not glad I won. i got to go to the bathroom right now. I want to be at the bar drinking. Whatever. I mean, why would you ask a stupid question like that? What went through your mind? These reporters, they just keep pushing and pushing and pushing, and that's what Kristen Cooper did. But NBC really isn't blameless in this because the network had hours to decide whether or not to show the interview in prime time, and even after... They saw the Twitter comments about it and the Internet outrage. NBC went ahead and did it themselves. That's my ugly for tonight. And that's the good, the bad, and the ugly for this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show.
Well, this could have been on the good, the bad, and the ugly also. Ted Wells released his independent report last week to the NFL concerning allegations of workplace misconduct with the Miami Dolphins. And the biggest takeaway from the report? Well, there's a consistent pattern of harassment by Dolphins offensive lineman Richie Incognito, John Jerry, and Mike Pouncey. Now, the biggest calamity so far has been the Miami Dolphins fired their offensive line coach Jim Turner and longtime head athletics trainer Kevin O'Neill from the fallout in the Wells Report. Will Manso of WELG in Miami talks about the firing and what is going to happen with the Miami Dolphins after this report has come out. Basically, in the words of uh, Dolphins owner Stephen Ross, he just basically said, look, the language and behavior in this report, in the Ted Wells report that was released, is something that we can't accept in the organization. And I think it's no surprise to anyone that Turner was fired because so many revelations came out in that report about not only knowing of harassment of Jonathan Martin and other players, but actually being part of it in some cases, including just a kind of a a risque uh, uh, Christmas gift a couple of years ago to one of the offensive linemen. So I think between that and what was said there, I think we knew that shoe would kind of drop. Now, the news with Kevin O'Neill is a little different because he's a guy who's been with the organization for 18 years. There was a minor mention of him in the report basically saying he had heard some of this had gone on with an assistant trainer and laughed a little bit about it, and I guess that was enough for Stephen Ross to make the change. I think that you know the way they did this, they, they gave it a few days, they looked at the report, Stephen Ross probably sat down with Philbin and looked at things and said, here's what we need to do from a firing perspective. They fire these two guys. I can't imagine that anyone else goes. It's clear that Joe Philbin's going to be the head coach. I mean, he released a statement and everything. He's going to speak to the media tomorrow. But I think that the dominoes that may fall next are what happens with the players involved. Number one is, would the Dolphins be welcome to bring Jonathan Martin back? I mean, they have to do something with him. What happens with Mike Pouncey? Does the NFL step in and suspend mm-hmm. Pouncey? Does the Dolphins do anything with Pouncey? Uh, you know, John Jerry's a free agent, Incognito's a free agent. I don't think they'll be back with the Dolphins. So I think those are the next questions to be answered. But as far as any firings, I think this will be it. The moves were the first punitive steps taken by the team since the report on the NFL's investigation of the case was released last week. The harassment not only was directed at Martin, but also at an unnamed Dolphins offensive lineman and assistant trainer. Well, there's a lot to digest in this entire report, but Pete Prisco of CBS Sports boils it down for us. If Jonathan Martin wanted Richie Incognito to face the consequences, boy, he's going to. If you read through all the findings of the report, it is a damning blow to Richie Incognito, and not only Richie Incognito, but some of his line mates. John, Jerry, and Mike Pouncey. This is a situation where the locker room got out of control. Some of the stuff you read in this report is unbelievable. And it comes to me, when I think about it, it's like Oz, the show on HBO, The Prison Yard. It gets so bad and so graphic, it is unbelievable. Now, I'll say this. A lot of this stuff has gone on for a long time in NFL locker rooms. Maybe not to this extreme. But what this will do, it will cause a lot of locker rooms to look inside each other and wonder what you can and cannot say anymore. It's no more the boys club. You better be careful what you say. This report exposes a lot of the problems inside the NFL locker room. They proceed with the idea that they are not under the same conditions of a normal workplace. Well, that's not the case anymore. When you read through this report, Richie Incognito crossed the line, Mike Pouncey crossed the line, John Jerry crossed the line, 
and what does it mean going forward? It probably means Richie Incognito might never play again in the National Football League. That's how bad this is. It probably means Jonathan Martin will have to fight to get on a roster because he obviously violated the supposed code of the locker room. But this is beyond that. This is something that the Miami Dolphins obviously had to clean up and Joe Philbin, the head coach, had to fix. Moving forward, I think you'll see a lot more NFL locker rooms cooling things and being a lot more politically correct, and that's the way it should be. Richie Incognito, his career may be over. Jonathan Martin, who knows? But what we do know is that the NFL locker room, the culture, will never be the same. Well, according to the report, Martin said he was subjected to bullying in high school, which led to depression and issues with self-esteem. Martin said he contemplated suicide in 2013. This guy's 6'5", 312 pounds, and from Pittsburgh. That's not a great place to be brought up in. It sounds like this guy needs a calming atmosphere to be successful. That's what he had at Stanford. Not sure if that exists in the NFL, because pressure abounds from every avenue possible. Sounds as if Martin doesn't thrive in a pressure-filled environment. So just where does that leave Coach Joe Philbin of Miami? And where does he fit into all this? And is his job safe? Again, we lean on Will Manso in Miami. Honestly, I think most people from the outside looking in say to themselves, and I fall into this category too, doesn't the head coach have to see or know something? Mm-hmm. You know, And I know that a head coach is not in the locker room, and I think anybody who's been in the locker room knows the head coach isn't around slapping high fives and, and, and talking to players. That's what he does on the, in the film room and on the practice field. But you would think that messages get through to him somehow. And somewhere along the line, that chain of command and that communication wasn't there with Philbin. Now, it was interesting because in the statement he released, he said, look, this falls on my shoulders, and from now on, I'm accountable. Which leads to the question, well, okay, well, who was accountable the years you've been head coach? So the Wells report did a pretty good job of kind of, I don't want to say the word vindicating Joe Philbin, but at least alleviating any of the real blame on this. So I think Philbin, in a way, gets a pass and gets the message from from Stephen Ross that, hey, this cannot happen, and from now on it's on you. But again, it raises good questions as to who was it on the last couple of years to allow this to even happen. Yeah, really. I, I agree with Manso. Do you really think a head football coach in the NFL doesn't know something this big is happening on his football team? But in conclusion, the report stated, as all must surely recognize, the NFL is not an ordinary workplace. Professional football is a rough contact sport played by men of exceptional size, speed, strength, and athleticism. But even the largest, strongest, and fleetest person may be driven to despair by bullying, taunting, and constant insults. We encourage the creation of a new workplace conduct rules and guidelines that will help ensure that players respect each other as professionals and people. So here we go. The typical NFL response under Roger Goodell is to go overboard, to make sure the NFL isn't subject to a subsequent lawsuit down the road. It's what he did with the concussion problem, and he consistently gets what he wants. It's only the courts that Goodell is afraid of. And remember this, while understanding what is going on in Miami, please, this tidbit of information is needed to roll everything into a tiny little bow. May not mean a lot, or it might just be the key that unlocks this entire dilemma. Just remember, Jonathan Martin's mother, Jane Howard Martin, is now a corporate lawyer for Toyota in Los Angeles, but for nearly two decades, she litigated employment law cases, spoke at legal symposiums, 
as an expert on the subject of bullying and workplace harassment and wrote articles for legal journals. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Austin Dillon will lead the 43-car starting field to the green flag on Sunday afternoon after earning his career first Sprint Cup Series pole award with a lap time of 196.019 miles per hour. That was a lap of 45.914 seconds. It marks the fourth time the number three has won the pole for the Daytona 500 and its 67th NASCAR Sprint Cup Series pole overall. Dillon will pilot chassis number 440 in the Daytona 500 at the Daytona International Speedway to start up the NASCAR season this Sunday. It's the same Chevrolet SS that Dillon utilized during January testing where he topped all the speed charts. Reed Spencer of the NASCAR Wire Service says there are three reasons to look forward to the 2014 NASCAR season. One, Jimmy Johnson, the defending series champion, defending Daytona 500 winner. Uh, there's a new format this year in NASCAR for deciding the championship. 16 drivers are going to make the chase, but wins are going to be a large part of who qualifies and who keeps advancing through elimination rounds at the end of the season. If you look at Jimmy Johnson's record, there have been 100 chase races run to date. Jimmy Johnson has won 24 of those, far more than anyone else. The way you advance to the next elimination round is by winning races. So I don't think they've done a good job of Jimmy-proofing the chase if that's what they were attempting to do. So I really like uh, Jimmy, again, to repeat his champion. Um, I also like Denny Hamlin and the momentum that he's brought into the season. He won last year's season finale at Homestead. And I also tend to like Brad Keselowski to recover from last year's post-championship swoon, slump, whatever you want to call it. So those three guys are the three that I think come into the season with either something to prove or a significant momentum. They turn to 500. Just about anybody is capable of winning in a draft sort of situation. In the Sprint Unlimited, you saw half the field eliminated in one rep, so you had you really don't know what's going to happen on the racetrack and who's going to be there at the end. But I'm going to go with Matt Kenseth because he led a lot of laps last year until his engine expired, and I think they've got the engine woes solved. Matt's very good here, and I think he's good at staying out of trouble as well. So Matt's my pick for Sunday. Well, the Daytona 500, Sunday on Fox. UFC 170 features the first UFC main event between two Olympic medalists. And they're women at that. Undefeated Bantamweights Ronda Rousey, 8-0, takes on Sarah McMahon, 7-0, and they meet at long last on Saturday night. The two fighters have been linked since entering the MMA around roughly the same time. It was a fight that made a lot of sense. Two incredible athletes with Olympic backgrounds, Rousey in judo and McMahon in wrestling. And as they vaulted up the ranks and took separate career paths, the anticipation has built to a crescendo that will culminate at UFC 170 on Saturday. Here's a preview of the fight in Rousey and McMahon's words. Rousey versus McMahon. That's the headliner. She goes right back into camp. Dana told me he would need me to fight again at the end of February. I call him any bitch he wants in February. I'm in the best shape of my life now, so I think it'd be perfect time to just go back to back. We're both 
undefeated Olympic medalists, and that's never happened for the UFC Championship. It's going to be an exciting fight. You can't not have an exciting fight. I hate having to meet people's expectations. I love proving them wrong. If you doubt me, that motivates me more than I. I know that a lot of girls have this idea that if they get me out of the first round, I'm going to break. And I just wanted to look better and better and better with every round, because that's how I fight. My first round is actually my worst one. I also wanted to prove that I could go multiple rounds and that I could fight standing. She tried to do a lot more things that she hadn't done before in the striking aspect. She used her natural instincts that helped her get as far as she did in judo very well. Rousey is the favorite in this fight and a large one at that because she's been so viciously dominant. But how do you beat her? For McMahon, the thought is that she'll have to utilize what brought her the Olympic silver in wrestling. But can she put Rousey on her back? If she does, she may have trouble defending against Rousey's submission attacks. Or Rousey could have trouble dealing with McMahon's heavy base and pure strength. Every win by Rousey has been by the armbar submission. And I think it will end that way again on Saturday night. Well, as we close tonight's show, a sad note. Nelson Frazier, best known to the wrestling world as Mabel Big Daddy V. Vicera, died on Tuesday after suffering a heart attack. Eric Sims, the former agent of the wrestler, shared the news on his Facebook page. Nelson Frazier was 43 years old. And the announcement that you've been waiting for, UltimateSportsTalk.com and its owner, Greg Mitchell, is announcing on tonight's show the fourth season of Ohio Baseball Weekly. And we'll return on Monday night, March 10th, with your co-hosts, Mark Donahue, and yours truly. Showtime is at 9 p.m., and again, we'll be discussing the fortunes of the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. Both teams made the playoffs one year ago, and they hope to do it again this year. So you can join us here at UltimateSportsTalk.com on Monday night, March 10th, at 9 p.m., with the newest season of Ohio Baseball Weekly. Promises to be a fun time. And that's going to do it for tonight's show. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for being our producer, and congratulations to the Cavaliers for making such a great deal. Of course, that music tells us that it's time to go. Thanks a lot for joining us tonight. Our thanks to you for listening. Don't forget Ohio Baseball Weekly starting on Monday night, March the 10th at 9 p.m. I'm Dave Mitchell. We'll be back with you again next week, and we're going to preview the Oscars here on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Until then, have a good week, everybody. Good night. <laughs>